We found parts of the bodies all over the house, in places you wouldn't think. The funny thing is the heads have never been found. Hands and feet and things like that. But no heads. Hello, fellow meddlers. You meddling kids. My name is Allison, and this is Metal for Hire. I'm writing solo today because my counterpart, co-pilot, really just my better half, Dorian, he's out today, but he's with us in spirit because he's actually on the other side of this door working his little tail off. Uh, But I took the day off and just really wanted to get this episode out for you guys. So here we are. This podcast is for those of you who, like us, were raised on Black Sabbath and Scooby-Doo. To those who listen to the sweet sound of unsolved mysteries playing in the background of your parents' bedroom as you fell asleep, we love you. We know you because we are you. If this is your first time here, welcome. Welcome to our little freak show. And for those of you returning, welcome back, homies. So today's case was actually chosen by one of our badass listeners, someone who I've literally slid into her DMs every day since she first reached out to us. Um, I just remember Dorian called me on the phone when we got a message from her because we just get so ooey-gooey excited when a listener takes time out of their day to reach out to little old us about the podcast. Um, And he was like, hey, I'm going to respond to her and just say thank you. And I was like, no, I want to do it. Um, So ever since then, nearly every day, um, this listener and I have talked and we're tribed up now. We're good old pals. Um, And this listener's name is Teresa. And she told us about a case that she thought would be interesting for us to cover. And when she told me what the case was, I was like, yes, girl, we're on it. The reason why I got so pumped to do the case is because it's one that I knew about pretty well. Um, And I'll tell you why this case has always stood out to me. So years ago, when I was in real estate, our team was working with a client who was a single man. He was a former police officer, and he was trying to sell his house. I worked in admin and transaction coordinating primarily on his sales, so I never met him in person, never saw his house in person, but I would speak to him on the phone regularly. And this poor man just had the hardest time trying to sell his house I didn't know why. It was priced to sell. It didn't have any major repair issues, but for some reason, every potential buyer that came along seemed to find a reason to squash the deal. For months and months and months, he tried to sell it. He'd get a buyer, but the deal would fall through, and he'd relist and have to go through the motions all over again. I felt awful for this guy. Um, as far as him personally, he was a really straight shooter kind of guy, straight to the point. Sometimes he was, you know, maybe a little short, a little curt with me, but I don't blame him. His deals were frustrating. Uh, but one day I just was compelled to Google his house or maybe I wanted to Google him. I can't remember, but I wanted to stalk him a little bit. Um, and when I did that, I saw his name linked to his address, the house that he was selling. And, uh, this is when I figured out likely why his transactions were falling through. I saw a handful of articles that said that this man's girlfriend had died in that house from a gunshot wound in their master bedroom. And I saw that he was briefly a suspect, but her death was overall ruled a suicide and he was no longer considered a suspect. 
I felt all kind of ways when I saw this. I felt bad for him. Sorry, that was my phone. I felt bad for him. I felt scared of him. Uh, Clearly, just this whole incident kind of stuck with me. But when I heard about the 2010 death of Michelle O'Connell, the case we're covering today, it rang a very similar tune to the story I just told you. And it just gave me chills and stuck with me forever because a whole lot of some things about this case do not sit right with me. And I'm not the only one. So thank you, Teresa, for picking this case. It is a frustrating one, one with way too much he said, she said, and really one that leaves you uneasy with farmer puzzling questions and answers. But let's get into it. Michelle O'Connell was just 24 years old when she was found lifeless inside of her boyfriend's home on the night of September 2nd, 2010 in St. Augustine, Florida. She was laying in a pool of blood that spilled from her mouth from an apparent intraoral gunshot wound, and St. John's County officers who arrived on scene were very quick to rule her death a suicide. So quick, in fact, that within a few hours that very night, Her family was notified by police that Michelle had died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. I am positive that all you smarty pants listening already know this, but I just have to say it's a medical examiner that determines the nature and cause of a death. And the ME wouldn't even have his official ruling for another couple of days. So the tone was prematurely set right off the bat that Michelle had commit suicide and her family was bewildered. To them and friends of Michelle, this was simply not something Michelle would ever, ever do. And as I mentioned, it was Michelle's boyfriend's house that her death took place in. His name is Jeremy Banks. Jeremy was the last person to see her alive and the first person to see her dead. And he was the only one with Michelle at the time of her death. Not only this, but he was a deputy with St. John's County Sheriff's Office, the very same officers who arrived on scene and who initially investigated the death of Michelle. And the gun used in the incident was Jeremy Banks' own service weapon. For my grimy true crimies, man, we should already have three words screaming at us right now. Conflict of interest. And you would be very correct. I mean, do you go to your friends to get a Brazilian wax? No, I don't. I'm going to go ahead and say that that would conflict with my interests. Do you vent about your boyfriend to his mom, his friends? Probably not, unless his mom's a real one. Did Martha Stewart go to jail for criminal insider trading charges, aka conspiracy? Yes, she damn did. So should a death be investigated by the same department who know work with, and are friends with the only witness there who happens to be an officer of law. No, it really shouldn't be. Because not only is that a conflict of interest, that just sounds like the mob. Uh, But here's the thing. It's allowed. Departments are able to determine if they themselves need to call in outside sources to investigate, or they can decide if they want to keep it in-house. We will definitely get into that a lot more, but let's back up and talk about Michelle and Jeremy, a little bit about how they met and the moments and events that led up to this tragic night. 
Michelle O'Connell was born on October 6, 1985, and was the youngest of six children. Six children! Her brothers and sisters and mother were all really close with each other, and all her siblings took extra special care to look after their baby sister, Michelle. Michelle's close friends and her family all sound like they're reading from the same script when they describe her because all they say was that Michelle was a vibrant young woman, very much full of life and a lot of love. As a teen, though, Michelle started struggling in school a little bit. And according to um, the special that Frontline did on Michelle's case, court records show that she was put under supervision of juvenile authorities for anger issues and depression. But it said that she was prescribed medication and with counseling, her overall attitude improved as well as her grades. Michelle was also super athletic, an amazing swimmer, uh, and just a perfect combo of sweet and zesty. I mean, I made that part up, but you can just tell she is, especially just what I'm gathering from how everyone talks about her. She even went skydiving once, guys. Think about the one person you know who's gone skydiving and tell me they are not spicy and zesty little meatballs. In high school, Michelle attended a vocational school, which is a school that pretty much directs education and training towards a specific occupation. And for Michelle, she focused her studies on childhood development. When Michelle was 20 years old, she became a mama to her beautiful daughter, Alexis, or Lexi, as Michelle and her family call her, Um, which same, I was just shy of 21 when I had my daughter. So um, like her and myself, it was a uh, surprise, but it was a beautiful surprise. So Michelle's mom recalls Michelle telling her that she was pregnant and, you know, she had tears in her eyes and her mom just embraced her and was like, that's wonderful, baby. Like basically her mom knew how scared she must have been, how nervous it made both of them. But regardless, she just wanted to let her daughter know it's okay. Whatever you do, it's fine. This is a beautiful blessing. And although the pregnancy was, you know, unexpected, Michelle was so excited to become a mother and an amazing mother she was. Michelle would raise her little girl on her own as a single mom, and at times worked two, even three jobs to support her and Lexi. She was just so focused and determined to give Lexi a beautiful life. Michelle and Lexi also had an amazing support system through her family, as we'll get to see as we go through the story. So Michelle's brother, Scott O'Connell, was the one who introduced Michelle and Jeremy Banks in 2009. Scott knew Jeremy from work because they were both deputies at St. John's County Sheriff's Office. And not only that, but Michelle's mother, Patty, also worked as a file clerk for the sheriff's office. When Michelle's mother, Patty, first saw her daughter with Jeremy, she thought, ah, he will protect her. Scott and friends of both Michelle and Jeremy said that they fell fast in love with one another. One minute they were introduced... The next minute, they spent nearly every waking minute together, and before anyone could even blink, Jeremy had invited Michelle and her daughter Lexi to move into his home with him, which they did. Um, It's tough to find details about Jeremy because he's obviously been under investigation and a lot of scrutiny, scrutiny, God, I said that word, since the death of Michelle, so his friends and people associated with him are, from what it seems, a little bit hesitant to talk about him. Uh, But what I do know is that in high school, he wrestled, he played a mean guitar, and both he and Michelle had a lot of close friends, some of them that became mutual friendships. 
And these friends had, you know, a good peek into their relationship and saw the love um, and they saw the arguments. Mutual friends will describe them both as fiery. Michelle, tough and independent, and Jeremy, strong-willed, but also short-tempered. Michelle and Jeremy dated for just about one year, and towards the end of that year, Michelle's family and friends had made it clear that Michelle expressed that she was no longer happy in her relationship with Jeremy. Her mother, Patty, says that it was about one to two months before her death that Michelle told her, it's getting really bad, mom. And throughout their relationship, Michelle's family said that they started hearing and seeing less and less from Michelle, you know, representing typical isolation tactics that we see in domestic abuse relationships. There were times that Michelle expressed to her sisters that there was abuse in their relationship, including Jeremy hitting her on the head choking her, and even making unwanted sexual advances towards Michelle well after she told him no. And on one instance, Michelle's family saw firsthand that Jeremy was being pretty rough with Michelle. Um, I guess they were play wrestling, and Jeremy straight up picked up Michelle and pinned her to the ground in a way that the family describes as how maybe a police officer would take an assailant down. Um, They witnessed Jeremy's knee pressing down on Michelle's stomach, which actually led to her experiencing vaginal bleeding so bad that the family wanted to call an ambulance for Michelle. But Michelle told her sister privately, please don't call an ambulance. You're going to make it really hard on me. And they interpreted this as her saying, this will cause issues with Jeremy at work. And in turn, he might retaliate against me. So none of this is on official record, which is why this case is a giant pile of he said, she said, or rather, she said, he denies. So weeks before her death, Michelle had actually just landed an amazing career opportunity as a preschool teacher at a daycare center. And her boss, Teresa Woodward, who hired her, she was really close with Michelle because she had also been her former high school teacher. Teresa had just recently given Michelle a full-time promotion with benefits, which was awesome. And Michelle even told Teresa that she was going to go to the doctor even though she wasn't even sick because it was the first time in her life that she had insurance for herself and Lexi. Her boss said in the Frontline special that I talked about, it's a really, really good special. You got to check it out. Um, Actually, I'll link that. But her boss said in that Frontline special, and I quote, Michelle's life was not spiraling down. She was happy with the changes that she was making. The most difficult change that she had to make was her personal life and her relationship with Jeremy. And she was trying to do that carefully and thoughtfully. End quote. Carefully and thoughtfully. Those words really, really stick out to me. Many people, um, you know, they express when they've lost a loved one to suicide that they maybe didn't have any signs or it wasn't something that this person might do, but planning for a future carefully and thoughtfully navigating how you're going to move forward from a year long relationship and just sharing the nature of her relationship with her family and friends openly, the bad and the good stuff. It does not sound like an individual with suicidal ideations on September 2nd, 2010, Michelle had lunch with her sister Chrissy, and she brought her daughter Lexi with her because Michelle had a concert that night, and her sister was going to watch Lexi for a few hours. At this lunch date, Michelle told Chrissy that she was breaking up with Jeremy, and it was going to be that night that she did it. And her sister Chrissy was like, 
I had this gut feeling and told Michelle, like, eh, do you really think that's a good idea? Maybe skip the show. Maybe wait to break up with him. Like, concerts and breakups, they don't really go very well. Unless it's, like, my chemical romance. <laughs> but this was a Paramore concert. Not the same kind of vibe, man. But Michelle was upbeat and positive, And as Chrissy says, was, like, true Michelle fashion. She told her, no, I bought these tickets. Like, you bet your sweet ass I'm going to the concert. Chrissy choked back tears on her interview with Frontline when she expressed that this was the last time that she ever saw her sister alive. Michelle went to the concert with Jeremy and her brother Scott. There are a lot of photos that were taken this night at the concert, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that Michelle has her sweet smile on. She looks really happy to be there. Jeremy is sitting next to her like a looming thundercloud. He looks pissed, to be honest. Um, and at one point, Michelle's brother, Scott, um, who remember, he's the one who introduced the two. He literally walked over to Jeremy and he was like, bro, do you mind swapping seats with me so I can sit with Michelle? He was like, if you're not going to enjoy this night with my sister, then I will. So it was clear to people who were at the show as well that he was in a pissy mood. But during the concert, Chrissy received a strand of strange texts from Michelle's phone. At 8.53 p.m., Michelle texts her, and I quote, Promise me one thing. Lexi will be happy and always have a good life. End quote. Chrissy responds perplexed, and she says, Promise you what? And Michelle responds, and I quote, That no matter what, Lexi will always be safe and loved. Her sister was worried really worried, and even texted Michelle back saying so. But shortly after the concert, Michelle texted her sister and said that she'd be there to pick up Lexi soon. But she never came to pick up Lexi. After the concert at 10.06 p.m., her brother Scott, who had been at the Paramore concert with them, received a text from Michelle's phone that said, and I quote, Lexi, never forget. Keep in mind, Jeremy Banks has testified that Michelle broke up with him in the car on the way home from the concert. And to me, the last text from her brother seems unfinished. Lexi, never forget. Never forget what? Just a little over an hour after this, at 1125, Dispatch received an infamous 911 call from Jeremy Banks that left a lot of people scratching their noggins. I'll play it for you now. 911. Okay. This call has been dissected apart piece by piece by everyone who's heard it. Um, so let's talk about some of the key things that stand out. So when dispatcher answers the phone, Jeremy can be heard in a huge panic. I mean, he sounds absolutely distraught uh, and rightfully so, you know, but he says, I think she just shot herself. There's blood everywhere. Remember, this is a deputy sheriff. He's likely come across scenes like this 
many times in his career, and he is trained to remain calm, and he is trained to relay the utmost important information to dispatch and other first responders, aka um, location, which he does, but he sounds so inconsolable and inaudible that you can hardly make out the address. And then when he says, I think she shot herself, you were there. And we know that he continues to claim that he didn't do it. No one else is there. So who shot her? You think, you think she shot herself. That's just a weird way to phrase that. In addition, that is his service weapon. Whether you had anything to do with it or not, you know exactly what that weapon sounds like when it's fired and you know exactly what happened. So I think is an odd choice of words. Um, a lot of folks find it odd too that Jeremy never uses Michelle's name. He only refers to her as she or her in the call. And no, it shouldn't be excluded from review. Um, you know, ask yourself, is this him distancing himself from Michelle? It's possible, but I have heard many, many 911 calls where, you know, maybe an innocent family member calls to report the incident and I don't hear a name used. I hear her or my daughter. Um, if anything, sometimes the name you hear is like, you know, Michelle, hang on, hang on, hang on. If they're talking to the victim or individual, um, in distress directly. But I think back to our first episode, the death of Bobby Jo Stinnett, and her mother said a comment in the 911 call that I thought was weird. She says, it's like her guts exploded or something because she finds her pregnant daughter murdered, blood everywhere, and her stomach absolutely slaughtered. It's like her guts exploded or something. That's a weird comment to me. But what stands out most is the sudden tone shift when the dispatcher asks Jeremy, ma'am, please calm down. She thinks she's talking to a woman on the phone. And Jeremy kind of gets mad and he goes, it's Mr. It's sir. It's sir. And then he says, listen, let me tell you the truth. And he goes on to introduce himself as Dep Deputy Banks with St. John's Sheriff's Office and suddenly, he's got his act together, and he's got a rather calm demeanor. So then when he says the line, let me tell you the truth, it just slapped me across the face. Why say that unless you are being deceptive? He goes on in the call to be just very authoritative. This is who I am. I work with y'all. Get someone here now. But let's still keep in mind that this man is trained for these exact moments, whether it's a family member or a loved one or not. All of a sudden, he seems to have his act together, but I still don't hear him saying anything helpful for the operator, nor helpful in trying to save Michelle's life. It could almost be taken as stalling because, again, he's well into the call and he's only said the address of their location once and it was near inaudible. Um, I didn't play this portion of the call, but once the operator again tells him, you know, you need to calm down and that help is already on the way, he goes back into hysterics that we heard at the beginning of the call. Former Deputy Deborah Maynard was on duty that night and of the first handful of officers to arrive on scene to 4700 Sherlock Place. 
She knew Jeremy Banks through work, though they weren't on a personal friendly level. And she knew prior to arriving on scene that the incident was a shooting involving one of their own. So she was on high alert. Upon arrival, officers gained access through the open front door and in a bedroom off to the side of the kitchen, they saw two feet lying still just beyond that door entry. Deputy Maynard describes seeing Jeremy crouched down by the bathroom door inside of the bedroom and near the bed laying on the floor was Michelle's body. I'll post a photo of Michelle and the house layout so you guys can get an idea of the scene and see what I'm describing, but her body is very much positioned like, uh, you know, like the classic body chalk outlines. She's laying supine on her back. Her right arm is upward towards her head. Her left arm is down below her left side and her legs are bent at the knee, but positioned lying down towards her right side. There is bright red blood pouring from her mouth, primarily off to the right-hand side of her cheek. Jeremy's holster belt, uh, you know, the black leather belts that cops wear and hold all their knickknacks, you know, an officer fanny pack, that was laying next to Michelle's arm on her left side. And Jeremy's service weapon lay on top of that belt. And the gun's tactical light was on. Just above her lash line in the crease of her eyelid was a cut measuring at about eight millimeters. Where did that come from? There was no suicide note and no other witness present other than Jeremy Banks. Deputy Maynard recalls going into the kitchen where she found Michelle's purse on the table. She went into it to search for her wallet in an attempt to positively ID Michelle, and she found two empty pill bottles, both prescribed to Jeremy. One was a bottle of hydrocodone, an opioid pain medication, it's important to note that in the investigation, it was said that they found 50 pills, 50, 5 in Michelle's pocket that came from both of these prescription bottles, and they were all, quote unquote, accounted for, whatever that means. So it kind of just sounds like they asked Jeremy how many were left, and he claimed that they were all accounted for. Um, it's also important to note that former Deputy Maynard said that she does not remember seeing anything like 50 pills in Michelle's pocket. She, you know, kind of maintains, hey, I was of the first people on scene. I remember looking at Michelle. She was wearing skin tight jeans. I do not recall seeing an excess of pills stuffed in her front pocket. And all my girls know that women's front pockets ain't shit. I'm lucky if I can even get, you know, like the length of my pinky in there. The last thing that I think is really important to note kind of of the officers who were first on scene is that it's not only former Deputy Maynard that felt that things didn't sit right that night. Deputy Mike Plott recalls Jeremy telling him that he and Michelle had gotten into an argument and she had pulled the gun out of a secured holster and shot herself. This seems strange to Mike because he said, most people don't know how to use that retention holster that was containing the gun. Um, so there's a number of different retention holsters that I guess officers may have on their belts. Um, different designs or levels, as they call it. Level one being like a one-step process to unlatch or unsnap it, allowing you to take the gun out of the holster. Um, I'm going to link a video explaining and showing you the different holsters and how they operate. Um, it's like a 15 minute video, but I just thought it was interesting. 
And from the photos um, that I saw of the crime scene and of the belt and the gun, I really couldn't tell what type of retention holster this is. But Mike Plot seems to think that it was very strange that a non-officer would know how to operate that. Is it possible that perhaps Jeremy showed Michelle at one point how to use it? Absolutely 100% possible. When later asked if Mike thought Jeremy had an explosive temper, he responded by saying, Oh yes, yeah, he's got temper issues. He'd drink and he'd just get pissed. You know, he would just throw a fit. He'd throw shit all over the place. And Mike's not the only one to describe Jeremy in this manner. One of the many things that stand out to um, not only some of the officers on scene, but people from the outside looking into this case. Why would Michelle kill herself with a gun if she had an excess of opioids in her possession? Stew on that a little bit. All right, so Deputy Maynard was ordered to take Jeremy out of the room shortly after they arrived on scene to find him and Michelle. And she says that she's got a great account of her impression of Jeremy's demeanor that night. And she said that Jeremy was not sad. He was angry and claims that when someone announced that they had a pulse on Michelle, Jeremy began growling is how she describes it. Like Hulk mania. Not only this, but she said that there was a strong smell of alcohol in him. Him and Michelle were at the concert right before this. They both had been drinking. Uh, Other deputies start arriving on scene, and some of them were off-duty. Lieutenant Tom, I think it's Quintieri, Tom Quintieri, he basically said, I don't even know how they found out, but before I knew it, everybody from St. John's Sheriff's Office started showing up. Jeremy's colleagues, friends, and family are surrounding him outside, and Jeremy isn't even interviewed until 1.23 a.m. on September 3rd. When he is interviewed, he's not taken down to the station. He's interviewed in the back of a squad car by his colleague, Detective Jessica Hines. And his off-duty sergeant sat in on the interview. But Lieutenant Tom Quintieri said that Jeremy's off-duty sergeant pretty much remained with Jeremy throughout the whole night. So some might say, wow, Jeremy had hours to maybe potentially be coached. Um, Or just sit there and come up with some type of story before he was actually formally interviewed, if you can call being interviewed in the back of a squad car formal. Jeremy Banks gives his account to Detective Jessica Hines of what took place, and he states that Michelle had broken up with him and was packing that night to move out when she shot herself with his service gun. He claims that he was sitting on his motorcycle in the garage when he heard the first gunshot. He said that he ran inside and started screaming Michelle's name, but found that the bedroom door was locked. From outside the bedroom door, he says that he heard the gun go off again for the second time, and then silence. He said he ran to find the phone, came back to the bedroom door, and kicked it in and called 911. Jeremy did not render aid, such as CPR, a skill every officer is well-trained in amongst other basic life support training. Now, if some other sleuth out there has found photos of this door, please, please share them with me because the only photo I was able to find was on the Frontline Investigation Special, and it clearly shows damage on the door to the middle right side of the door handle. It looks to me like this would be exactly where someone would kick in a door, 
But what I want to see are more photos and maybe like a description of what type of lock was used. I want to see the mounting plate on the wall. And not always, obviously, but typically when a locked door is kicked in, you can see damage nearer to the lock and or the door frame. So Jeremy claims that this door was locked and, and I want to know more about it. If it was locked, I would imagine that there's damage to the door frame as well. But as we'll see, the initial investigation, I say that in air quotes, was abrupt and evidence either went missing, didn't get forensically tested for some time, and some evidence just didn't seem to match up. We'll get into that. But back outside of 4700 Sherlock Place, an absolute circus is developing. As we know, word is spreading within the department that Jeremy's girlfriend Michelle has died of a gunshot wound, and everyone and their mom starts to show up to his house. Whoever was responsible for controlling this crime scene did not do their job correctly, as this is where we begin to see a landslide of conflicts of interest. Plain and simple, your crime scene is not controlled nor being taken seriously when off-duty officers, homies, looky-loos are all now surrounding the scene and even invited onto the scene. But when Scott O'Connell, Michelle's brother, and just again reminding you, he's another deputy with St. John's Sheriff's Office, when he hears what happened to his baby sister, sister and he rushes on scene, he is turned away. He is not allowed on scene. Scott claims that in that moment, he walked up and he had requested an outside investigation, which didn't happen initially. Former Deputy Maynard states that Scott immediately went to go get his gun, brought it over to Deputy Maynard and other officers and said, please take these away from me right now. Get them out of here. Deputy Maynard also states that typically the officer responsible for writing up a report is the officer to arrive first on scene. But in Michelle's case, another officer who she claims hadn't even gone inside was tasked with writing the findings report. How can someone who didn't physically see the scene write up a report on their findings? So following Michelle's death, St. John's Sheriff's Office ordered a copy of Michelle's cell phone records. Jeremy's cell phone records were not initially pulled. After investigators saw the cryptic text that Michelle had sent her siblings during and after the Paramore concert, it was clear to them that she was suicidal, and perhaps that was her way of saying goodbye to her family and her daughter Lexi. Michelle's family and friends were never interviewed, never asked, hey, what was Michelle's demeanor that day and in the days leading up to this? Hey, what was Michelle and Jeremy's home life and relationship like? They were never asked. In addition, we now know that the neighbors surrounding Jeremy's home were never contacted for statements after the incident. Two days after Michelle's death, assistant medical examiner Dr. Frederick Hoban ruled Michelle's manner of death a suicide. But years later, state medical examiner's commission found probable cause that Dr. Hoban violated policies stating that he kept some of Michelle's investigative and autopsy findings at his house and didn't incorporate them into the official case file, including one huge finding that a later autopsy exposed and would question his very finding that Michelle's manner of death was suicide. We are not done talking about Dr. Hoban, and we are not done with this case, 
But for today, this is part uno. This is part one of two parts. There's a lot more to uncover and dive into with you guys, um, including more autopsy findings and two angels, really. Like I've talked about some of our other cases, just having like a malevolence surrounding them, like the Ken and Barbie killers. I'm just convinced that there were dark evil forces that protected those two for so long and even still. But in this case, there seems to be these two angels on earth who were actually complete strangers to Michelle in life and who, along with Michelle's family, have worked really hard to keep Michelle's name very much alive and have fought hard for Michelle's case to not only be reinvestigated, but appropriately investigated. And let me tell you, Michelle's case continues down a rabbit hole and just gets wilder and wilder. Oscar Wilde, Scott Wilder. It gets Olivia Wilde in this bitch. So... We really hope to get part two out to you guys ASAP this week, and then hopefully I'll have my co-host with me next time too. Yay, 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 part two. All right, so on a separate note, uh, this morning I was listening to our local rock radio station, 94 Rock, and they brought up something that I wanted to kind of expand upon and talk to you guys about because I felt like it was perfect. We're metal for hire after all. So musicians, especially up and coming bands or, you know, the underground non-mainstream artists, they have been in an uphill battle for some years now trying to figure out how to make money on their albums. Like musicians used to be able to do back in the day with their album sales. So think to yourself for a sec. When is the last time you bought an album? If you've recently supported an artist or band by purchasing an album, then you don't have any homework tonight. But for the rest of you, I just want you to think about this for a second. With platforms such as Spotify, and Lord knows I love my Spotify, but it's become increasingly challenging for artists to make money off of album or music sales. And with musicians being completely cut off from touring this past year, it's literally been a recipe for disaster. So some ways that Dorian and I have tried to support our bands have been to buy tickets to their live stream shows. Um, I've been floored. A lot of them are putting so much effort into their live streams from the lights, the graphics, the sound. We've just been super impressed and we've really enjoyed watching those. And so kind of, I guess the homework I want to assign you is to pick a band of yours that you might know they're not like mainstream. They might be, you know, a small fish in a huge ocean, but pick an artist or a band, buy an album direct from their website or from Apple. And of course, like hit up their merch, baby, buy up all their merch. So the band I'm going to focus on supporting is highly suspect. They are the best band, in my humble opinion, that I've been able to discover in like the last five years. Um, They've definitely been around a lot longer than that, but I want to see more of them. I definitely want to see them live again. They blew my mind when I saw them live, and I just want to continue supporting them. So if you haven't heard of them yet, check them out. And if you like them, buy an album. Um, Their albums, Mr. Asylum and The Boy Who Died Wolf, are flawless. And they've done some unique, cool stuff with um, their more recent albums. So definitely, definitely check them out if you like alternative rock. And if D was here with me, hands down, he would say that he would want to shout out and support the metal band Miss May I. 
great guys in that group and their merch is bad as fuck. They've got like short sleeves. They've got crew neck long sleeves, beanies, shorts, masks, you name it. So check out their website, missmayimusic.com. And you could literally just scroll through their store pages for days and days. They have so much dope apparel. So yeah, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um, I just know I want to see our bands play live again. And the fact of the matter is, even though we're seeing things slowly reopen, you know, concerts getting scheduled, this past year had to have been a hundred steps back for a lot of bands. And it's not as simple as like, oh, this venue's opening up, let's schedule a tour. No, you need money to plan a vacation and bands need to be in good standing to plan a tour. So support your creatives. All right, y'all. I can't wait to get part two of this episode for you guys really soon. I hope you have a kick-ass week. And next time you hear from us, I'll have my co-host back. See ya.